Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Hey, everybody. It is CW. Tanya is not with us today in the studio. She's out traveling, but I'm going to be here today with Michelle Madison of Morris Manning and, and Martin. And we're going to be talking about what the recent campaign and, and ultimate presidential election are going to mean for Obamacare. Uh, the law has been over the past few years being incrementally implemented this year, there were several elements of it that were really starting to kick in, and and we've talked over the last year or two here on the show about MIPS program and MACRA and just different changes to the way that physicians and healthcare systems are reimbursed around the work they provide, uh, shifting away from more of a, a disease-focused and transactional delivery of care more towards heavier focus in outcomes and and value for the care that's being delivered such that your trend lines for outcomes and and things like that can have a big impact on how you're reimbursed either positively or negatively in the subsequent years to that in which this care is delivered. And of course, with the recent inauguration of President Trump, he kept a campaign promise that right right out of the blocks, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Obviously now that's underway, at least in part. And that leaves many, many questions for (laughs) all of the folks out there that were scrambling to make sure they were being compliant. So I'm very pleased to have Michelle with us in the studio. And with her focus in healthcare law, I know that a lot of organizations are going to know of her and and have heard her uh, opinions around this subject. So I'm I'm pleased to have her here. She received her law degree from the University of Georgia, and she was designated by Best Lawyers in America as a top lawyer for healthcare law. She was selected for Georgia Super Lawyer by Atlanta Magazine 2014-2016 and honored by Georgia Trend as a legal elite lawyer. We have an expert in the house. (laughs) Thanks for sitting in with us. Thank you for having me. Where do we start? I mean, the the healthcare reform landscape is is moving faster than we thought. I mean, can you? I mean, as you've sat back and watched the last few weeks, when you just what is your what is your inner your reaction as you take all of this in? The complete unknown. We really, even with every little tweet and every little announcement, you're still kind of wondering, okay, what's next? What's really going to impact the regulations? What should we look for? So even before President Trump was inaugurated, the Republican Congress started down the road of trying to make it easier to repeal the Health Care Reform Act. So they passed specific rules that would enable them to be able to repeal the law without having to get a supermajority, but just a majority vote. And so that was kind of the first linchpin of, all right, we're going to make this easier to repeal the law, which led from a regulatory standpoint, if I'm a physician or a hospital thinking, well, how fast is this really going to come down the pike? And then President Trump, on the first day of his presidency, signed the executive order. And as you listened to it, as he was signing it, I was driving to a meeting and I heard it on the radio. And what they said was, it's to ease the burden of Obamacare. That could mean a lot of things. And so from a healthcare provider standpoint, you think about, okay, well, I've got patients that have to get insurance under the Healthcare Reform Act. 
There are ways that I'm getting paid under the Healthcare Reform Act, under insurance exchange programs. There's multifaceted parts of the healthcare reform, and that executive order kind of made everybody stand up and say, what does it mean? So I can remember the next couple of days trying to reread it and reread it and reread it to figure out, is there some meat behind it? And even sitting here today, it's still somewhat of an unknown what the federal agencies will do based on that executive order. What we are hearing now is that they're starting to take a breath and say, if we do repeal, we will replace. Then you have to decide which parts will be replaced first, and can you do it simultaneously, or is there going to be a gap? And then from a healthcare provider perspective, it really depends on which parts get repealed, or is it all carte blanche repeal right away? So there's lots of unknowns. It is definitely the Lawyer Employment Act, because lawyers out there are going to be reading these executive orders and these rules as they're coming down on a constant basis. But if I'm a healthcare provider, if I'm strategically looking at my future, then I am paying attention to the current cases that are out there with regard to the insurance exchange. And I'm focused on, as they start to repeal, what will they replace it with? So we're going to move forward with that process. I anticipate, based upon the recent articles that we've had in the last couple of weeks, that the Republican plan will be a little bit more formalized probably by the end of March going into April. Maybe that's too optimistic. But if you remember last year in June, they had put out a 26-page kind of proposal, they being the Republican Party, about what they would look for in healthcare reform. So it was the better day was their document. And when you look at that and then you look at Tom Price's bills that he put out in 2015, you start to analyze where the changes will be on healthcare reform and then try to figure out where you're going to be come May And then just yesterday, President Trump said that he was going to leave most of the health care reform provisions in place through the end of this year so we can allow for a smooth transition, which gives us some hope there's going to be a smooth transition versus just a let's pull it off and hopefully band-aid it afterwards. Throw it in reverse while we're cruising down the highway. Um, I I know that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan also had said something similar that just because we're doing things formally with the law doesn't necessarily mean that it will be put out there today that now it's this is how you have to do it, as you said, that they will take some time. And as we've seen, just looking back at the ACA, the Affordable Care Act and its implementation, it was much the same. They put it into place and certain things certainly took off and and became immediate. But um, particularly when they were looking at things like new costs for, for, for businesses, for example, different things like that, that was going to change and have a, an impact on those elements, they phased it in. And one of those facets that that was being incrementally implemented was MACRA. Can you talk about that? That's the value-based payment system. And 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 where are we? Where I mean, in my opinion, and I'll 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 defer to yours. But as an uneducated person, I'm not in le- in, in in the legal sense. My my assumption would be until we know otherwise, until you're told this is the this is the way you have to do it, starting X date, continue forward with the processes that you were putting in place and the changes you were making? Because some of those things may not been back, as you were just saying. Well, and if you look at MACRA, my recommendation on MACRA is move forward with it because it's not going away. So MACRA was a law that went into effect separate from health care reform. And when I say separate from health care reform, if you remember, there was a sustainable growth rate. And every year they would say, okay, we can't have this sustainable growth rate, we're going to have to cut the physician's compensation under Medicare Part B by 21%, 22 27%. Every year we kind of went into this panic <laughs> mode as doctors. Imagine that. A small problem. Hard to budget on that. Yes. And so the goal was 
to utilize this law to get rid of sustainable growth rate completely. So you don't have this cliffhanger every year for doctors and their reimbursement. But what it does is it moves physician reimbursement from a fee-for-service schedule. So where if I'm a doc, I see a patient in my office and I bill for that visit that day and move on. Change it from that kind of model to I'm going to pay the physician based upon their scores, which are going to be scored based on quality, clinical practice improvement activities in their practice, and then advancing care information, which is our new meaningful use. So for years, physicians have done certain types of activities using a certified electronic health record to get federal subsidies to then pay for that certified electronic health record. And that is now, that was a meaningful use program. That is now going to be called advancing care information. The purpose there being, I'm going to score my doc based upon how he uses the certified electronic health record to interact and provide treatment to his patients. So what MACRA said is the government would like very quickly, like for 90% of reimbursement to be based on value-based reimbursement by 2020. That's a huge change from where we are today. But they would like for the reimbursement model to be based on quality outcomes and value-based purchasing and not a fee-for-service model, with the concept being that that'll reduce the overall cost of healthcare. So MACRA has two models of two types of reimbursement, and they are it's not a you-can-play-if-you'd-like-to-play. It's mandatory for physicians. So this is the transition year, 2017. So physicians will either be in what we call the Medicare incentive-based reimbursement model, MIPS, or they'll be in the advanced alternative payment model, which are things where a physician takes financial risk for their patients. So the doctor would say to the government, I'm going to care for these 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries. It costs you $6 million to care for them over the last three years on average. I'll do it for five. If he actually winds up doing it for seven, he'd have to pay back a percentage of that overage. So he's at risk. And if he does it for five or less, he'd get a share of the savings. So there's an upside and a downside. That's the advanced alternative payment model. Sitting here today, 95% of the physicians will not be eligible for that model. Yeah, it's pretty restrictive in who can participate in that piece. It is. And there's a very limited number of programs that have been approved. And I'll, it'll come back to healthcare reform in just a second. I'll explain how that's going to get impacted. But the other model, the MIPS model, the physicians this year will decide, this is their transition year, do they want to report on quality clinical practice improvement activities and advancing care information all year long, which they could increase their Medicare reimbursement in 2019 by 4% or more by doing that. Or they could do it for 90 days as long as they report before October 2nd of this year. Or they could just report one patient outcome, one clinical outcome, and a clinical practice improvement activity metric, and they could keep their reimbursement the same. Or they could do nothing this year, and in 2019, they'll probably get a 4% decrease on their reimbursement on Medicare, Mm -hmm. Medicare alone, mind you. So that's the MIPS model. It's changing how physicians interact with their patients. It's changing how the government will pay. And in 2021, they're expecting third-party payers to be under those same kind of models. Mm. So you'll see your Blue Cross Blue Shields and your Uniteds and your Aetnas following that same kind of model. And in all honesty, they're leading that model right now in several states. So they're already implementing these types of programs in other states. So from that standpoint, you'll have the MIPS model. On the advancing care information model, or advancing um, alternative payment model that I mentioned earlier, where the doc would be at risk. When he's at risk, he or she is at risk in that clinical practice model, the reimbursement will be a 5% bonus on Medicare reimbursement 
versus an up or down model on their reimbursement. So under MIPS, you can go up by 4% or down by 4% in the first year. Under the advanced alternative payment model, you just get a 5% Medicare bonus. However, this is how it gets impacted by healthcare reform. Under healthcare reform, there was an agency created called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So the concept was, think outside the box. How do we reduce the overall cost of Medicare? What kind of demonstration programs can we put in place, like an accountable care organization or other types of practices where they try to do bundle payments and really reduce the cost of care? And let's implement those and see which ones are successful. And the ones that are successful, we would then spread out as a reimbursement model across the entire Medicare population. So that was the purpose of that innovation agency. Under healthcare reform, that was developed. Under the alternative payment models for MACRA, those are the programs that doctors can get, can get into to get that 5% bonus. So under the Republican repeal and replace model, at least what they've thrown out so far, they want to get rid of that agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. But the reason is in 2020, that agency may get up to $10 billion in funding from different federal funding sources. So that would save a lot of money on the federal government standpoint. So then the question is, I'm giving you my own questions. The question is, if I'm a doc and I want to get an alternative payment model and we repeal healthcare reform and I don't have this agency developing programs, what programs can I get into so I can make sure that I can be in this alternative payment model and get my 5% bonus? And I think the answer to that is, They've created a physician technical advisory committee to look at programs where doctors can get at-risk patient-centered medical homes focused on advancing care for their patients, and those will be the new models if the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation go away. And then I think you'll still see accountable care organizations and some of these bundled payment models, like the cancer oncology payment model that really focuses on quality outcomes for their patients as being the models that will allow physicians to get into that 5% bonus pool. So I, while MACRA is separate and distinct from healthcare reform, it does overlap on that CMMI, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You were talking about how the way that physicians interact with their patients has been changed by some of these changes in the law. Uh, I mean, intuitively to me, it seems like some of those elements, when we started moving away from how many procedures can you do to what are the trend lines for the patients that you're seeing? Are they overall the measurable things like diabetic populations and various things like that, where you actually, I'm um, treating you, are you getting better? Are you improving your health? I mean, intuitively, it seems like that that's a great idea. Were, were, were those things being borne out in, in either studies or financial reporting that was coming in that we were actually achieving something in that in that direction? Or was it just changing the way we pay? Do you follow my question? Yeah, so whether or not we're really having the yes. outcomes that we're looking for. It would seem that those are good things. They're excellent things if we can, especially when I look at the Georgia population, because most of my clients are in this area, and you have this diabetic patient. We have a huge diabetes issue in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so being able to say, yes, we implemented programs that changed their behavior, and so it improved their outcomes. There are studies that are coming out all the time that are showing some improvement, and there are some studies that are coming out showing the length of stay for those patients in the hospitals has been reduced. So when you look at the bundle payment programs, which is not diabetes, but look at your joint replacement, your hip replacements, mm -hmm. that's a real costly procedure to Medicare because you have your physician office visits, you have your hospital stay, you have your rehab stay after you get discharged from the hospital. So there's a huge cost there. And the program is to say, all right, we're going to give you one payment 
physicians, hospital rehab providers, for the patient services three days before they go in the hospital to 90 days post-acute. And you guys decide how that payment's going to be divided. Well, you, that motivates people to say, well, how do we reduce the cost? So the length of stay of patients went down, and they did find that in the studies. And some of the patient outcomes got better because when you get your knee replaced, you're now walking before you leave the hospital that mm-hmm. day, which I'm sure is extremely painful. But it moves the and accelerates the patient having a quality outcome faster. So length of stay goes down, cost goes down, rehab costs go down. So there are studies that are showing that there are some outcomes. But we got a long way to go. We're talking with healthcare legal expert attorney Michelle Madison of Morris Manning and Martin here on Top Docs Radio today, learning about her perspectives around the the recent presidential election and and the ensuing repeal uh, activity and replace hopefully to follow that uh, that will be coming forth soon around the Affordable Care Act and uh, learning about her perspectives on how healthcare organizations as well as providers and physicians should be thinking about things, you know, should we continue to put in place the systems that we're going to be compliant with, like MACRA and MIPS and those types of things. When it comes to the physician quality reporting system, talk about that a little bit. It can have some negative adjustment on my reimbursement. What about PQRS? Sure. So one of the things MACRA did, as I mentioned, it got rid of the sustainable growth rate issue about you're going to get hit with a 27% decrease. And instead, it also sunset the PQRS program. So 2015, physicians reported on nine quality metrics. If they did not report on them, then they got hit with a 2% decrease in their reimbursement. So physicians that are in a practice of 10 or less reported as individuals. So they would get scored based upon their own reporting. Physicians in a practice of 10 or more were scored as a group. So a lot of physicians at the end of last year got letters saying you either hit your metric or you didn't hit your metric. And it was a shockwave because a lot of physicians realized they're going to get hit with a 2% reduction on their Medicare reimbursement. And for a lot of physician practices, when they look at their third-party payer agreements, they tie back to their Medicare reimbursement. So (laughs) their third-party payer agreement might say it's a percentage of Medicare. (laughs) Right, yes. So now they've just been hit on both sides. So I have some docs who said, I didn't even realize I needed to be reporting, but it was mandatory. The doctors had to report on PQRS. When you move to the macro model under MIPS, there's a quality provision. So in 2017, I mentioned that's the transition year. 2018, it's mandatory. Physicians have to report on quality metrics that mirror up with what we had under PQRS. So if I'm a doc sitting here today, I'm hopeful that I reported on PQRS, okay, I'm hopeful that I got my score above the threshold and I'm not getting hit with a 2% decrease, but let's say that my score was below. Then I want to look at my QRUR report, which is a report that CMS provides to all the docs, but you have to go onto their portal to get it. And a lot of people do not realize that. Mm -hmm. You have to go on their report, onto the portal, get your QRUR report. It'll tell you where you fell in relation to your peers. It will also have a scheduled exhibit to it that'll tell you all the Medicare patients that were attributed to you as a doctor from Medicare. That's how they scored you. Mm -hmm. And that'll show you where you are in comparison to your peers. So then when we flip over to macro and the MIPS reimbursement, there are 271 quality metrics you can choose from. (laughs) You only have to report on six. (laughs) But you do have to report on six of those metrics at least. And so if you look, and let's say I did awesome on my PQRS scoring on these nine parameters, So I want to pick those same, at least six of those nine to report for MIPS purposes. 
And if I did great on PQRS before, I might want to report all year this year because then I could really maximize my Medicare reimbursement in 2019. But let's say I did terrible. Then I want to go look at those 271 quality metrics and figure out which ones I can actually do well at. And that's what I would pick to report on in this year. And I would report on something, even if you just report on one patient outcome and one quality and CPI metric, CPIA, Clinical Practice Improvement Activity Metric, I would report on something to maintain your current Medicare reimbursement. But PQRS is a good tool because, you know, obviously it's impacting our reimbursement now. We might as well use it to figure out what we can improve upon under MIPS and MACRA so we can maximize our reimbursement later. When it comes to the the exchanges where folks are going to, or many folks are going to secure health plans, um, a lot of doctors didn't participate in the plans that they made available through those exchanges. And, and obviously, a lot of the insurance companies themselves didn't either. I mean, I assume that may pass off into another world or uh, change in some significant way. I mean, what do you think is going to happen around that? I mean, the, the thing that for me as, a, as an individual, when I looked at that particular element of the law, Yay, we got insurance for people. Can they use it? <laughs> Either because of their patient obligation or because the network of physicians and participants that they can go be seen by is so minuscule or so far away, that kind of thing. It, it seemed like it was a, uh, a wooden nickel. <laughs> so it is. But when you look at the insurance exchange, there's so many facets of it that are amazing. So you have the insurance exchange and you had insurance companies that got on the exchange to offer insurance to individuals who could not afford it through their employer or in other means because we're required to have it. Otherwise, you pay this tax. And if you look today, there are a lot of insurance companies that got off of the exchange. But then you look at the enrollment and it's increased dramatically. So if you look at the patients who actually got onto the exchange, it doubled in a lot of states in this last year. Now, the premiums from the insurance companies also went up pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. I think I saw a report, on average, it went up 18%. Some went up 29%. But then you look at the patient population they were insuring, and these are individuals who couldn't get insurance elsewhere. And so they have a lot of comorbidities, not mm -hmm. all of them, but some of them. Mm -hmm. And those are high-cost costs to the insurance companies. So this is a multifaceted issue because the government realized, okay, we want to have, under healthcare reform, everybody have access to insurance. We're going to create this insurance exchange so that the insurance companies will get on and offer insurance to these individuals without underwriting them for all pre-existing conditions, all those types of things. So they're going to have some individuals who have high cost in their insurance. So the federal government said, we're going to subsidize the premium payments and we're going to give a cost share reduction to the insurance exchange companies to get them on the exchange. The problem from an insurance company standpoint is that while they got some of the subsidies, one of the huge subsidies was called the cost share reduction. And that was where the federal government said, we're going to have some insurance companies that have pretty well population patients. They're not going to have a lot of claims. They probably will make a profit on the premiums. And then we're going to have insurance companies on the other end of the spectrum who have lots of high-end claims and are losing money because they're insuring this, this patient population. So we're going to take money out of one insurance company who made a profit and give it to the other insurance company who had high-risk patients. And what happened at the end of the day, for 2014 and 2015, there wasn't enough money to distribute between those two companies. And so the federal government, if you look at some of the articles, they owe on average 
approximately $8.3 to $8.5 billion to these insurance companies that got on the exchange, which has sprung up a whole bunch of lawsuits. And there's a lawsuit that's currently pending. And depending upon what happens with that lawsuit, it'll determine whether or not those exchanges get the money or don't get the money. So to give you an idea, in 2014, the insurance companies that were supposed to get CSR got about 12% of what they should have gotten. So there are lawsuits out there where the federal government's been sued for $149 million, all related to insurance companies being on the exchange insuring this patient population. Then you have the other side of the coin where you've got the patients who got on this insurance exchange, but because it doubled in the number of people who enrolled and because you have some that have high cost and you have a very low number of insurance companies on the exchange, like in some counties, there's only one insurance company to choose from and they might have a very narrow network. Right. And so you might have a really high deductible. I mean, I've talked to people who said, my deductible is $12,000 and there's only four doctors in town that I can go to. So we have two problems on the exchange. You're still self-insured, I mean, at that point, honestly. That's a great way to put that. You are. So you have the insurance exchange problem where the insurance company is taking a lot of risk and we don't have the back stop of the subsidies that were originally supposed to be there. And that's kind of tenuous right now. And then you have the patient population, some of whom got insurance and are doing fine, and some of whom have faced some deductibles that are really high, and yet we're having to deal with that. When you look at where Congress has talked about this moving forward, and if you look at Tom Price's bills that he's put out there and the Republican plan that they put out, it's really focused on instead of the federal government giving subsidies to the insurance exchanges, it's a tax credit to the individual. And then the question is, is the tax credit enough to really pay the difference in that premium because you have people who had a lot of comorbidities and a lot of high cost? Will that tax credit really be sufficient to pay a premium to cover their cost? Mm-hmm. So that's it's a hard situation to come out of. And from an insurance exchange standpoint, a lot of them, the only way they can offer those products is with the subsidies that came out of healthcare reform. So they're watching every minute to see which part of healthcare reform gets repealed earlier versus which part gets replaced at the same time. And you're starting to see CMS put out reports like 11.5 million people enrolled on the exchanges in the last quarter of 2016. Well, why did they put out that press release? Because they want Congress to realize if we don't fund the exchanges and keep the exchanges in place, just in that one quarter, you have 11.5 million people who wouldn't have insurance. So it's a it's a hard dynamic, and it's a really complex problem that I think if we can take a pause and think through what are the right steps to tackle both the patient side and the insurance carrier side, it's going to take a meaningful discussion between patient advocates, providers, and the insurance company all at the table to figure out what's the best way to be accountable for healthcare and ensure that we have a way of providing and paying for that health care on all avenues. Now, where did Medicaid fit into all of that? Because, I mean, I know a lot of the patients that were going to the exchanges were some of those folks that would essentially be in that Medicaid pool of people. So I know some states, I think Georgia was one, they said they weren't going to expand the, the Medicaid, and some did. So how does that fold into this part of that conversation? So Medicaid expansion, which has been a very nice hot topic ever since healthcare reform was passed, um, you're right. There are 19 states that said, no, we're not going to do it. And Georgia is one of them. And so the pool of people who are eligible for Medicaid was less in Georgia because they didn't do the Medicaid expansion. So those individuals would have enrolled on the exchange. And we saw the exchange double in enrollment in Georgia. So those people did what they thought they would do. They went to the exchange, got a product of some kind. They're paying a premium. Some people did. And there are clearly people who said, 
I don't need to worry about it. I don't. There are people, if you don't make it a sufficient number of dollars per year to require the tax for not getting insurance, then they probably didn't get insurance. Mm -hmm. And then we clearly have a population of people who are younger who say, I'm not willing to pay that kind of premium and that deductible, so I'm going to take the risk right now. Mm -hmm. One of the ideas that I've heard floated, and I haven't seen it in anything specific, but I've heard this concept, so total speculation, is for individuals who did get on the insurance exchanges or bought their insurance under healthcare reform, if the exchanges move to a private exchange, just private competition, if those individuals get a tax credit and keep their insurance, then they won't be subject to being subject to underwriting, which could increase their premiums. So if they keep insurance with some kind of carrier, they won't have to go through the underwriting process, which was one of the benefits of mm -hmm. healthcare reform, versus a concept that if you drop your insurance, let's say healthcare reform gets repealed and the individual mandate's not there anymore. So you say, I'm done. I'm dropping my insurance. I'll just deal with it. Then you may be subject to underwriting when you go to get insurance later. So the motivation is kind of this stick of, if you don't keep your insurance, then you might be subject to underwriting. But if you keep it, you won't. But that means that you'll keep insurance coverage to be able to pay the providers under their plans. It's just an idea. I've heard it floated, but I haven't seen anything specific on it yet. Us immortal humans, I, I don't think far enough down the road, I, I think a lot of those people will opt. I got to pay rent, man. I got to, I can't, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, as you said, that's kind of what's played out in the marketplace anyway, particularly around those elevations, if you will, uh, across the economic spectrum where that those pressures are real and those choices are, are, are big. And, and, and I don't know, it, it, a stick is a hard way to make something happen. I think that's true. Honestly, it's particularly when it's, um, you know, around your health, you know, when it comes to the accountable care organizations, we talked a little bit about that. I mean, where do they go from here? I mean, they were kind of put together to fold into that whole value-based approach. I, I think that there's some components to those concepts that it seems to me it would make sense to keep around. Do you you feel like they're here to stay on some some? So I think that they had a slow move in the beginning because people thought, goodness gracious, how are we going to get everybody in this one organization and share information and yes. do this population health? <laughs> but under the macro model. So I told you there's that two models. There's the MIPS, so where the docs reimbursement is going to go up or down based upon their score. They get scored, 60% of their score this year is based on quality, 15% based on clinical practice improvement activities, and the rest on advancing care information. If a physician is in an accountable care organization, and it, it, let's just say it's the upside only, so there's no financial risk. They're in ACO, what I call number one. So there's no financial risk to them, but they're in an ACO or they're in a patient-centered medical home, which is the same concept. The patient is getting care through an integrated delivery system mm -hmm. of physicians who have kind of agreed to these patient-centered protocols to make their outcomes better, which really takes the patient being part of that compliance too. But if a physician is in an ACO or a patient-centered medical home model that's accredited, they can maximize their quality score and their clinical practice improvement activity score under the MIPS program. So I think that's the carrot of keeping people in those integrated delivery systems mm -hmm. so that they can maximize those scores, maximize their Medicare reimbursement. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the federal government wants us to move 90% of our reimbursement to something based on quality and value-based reimbursement. So they are creating more accountable care organizations that have financial risk. 
So the last macro final rule that came out at the end of last year created something called an ACO plus one. There are different ACO models. ACO one, you only get the upside. So if you cut the cost, you get a share of the savings if I'm a doc or a hospital. ACO two, before MACRA, said you get a share of the savings and you have to pay back a portion of the cost overage if you go above the cost that you promised to keep it under. ACO three was just a higher percentage of what you get in the shared savings versus what you pay back. They're going to create an ACO plus one to motivate people in the ACO one that only had an upside to jump over into ACO plus one, and they're going to limit their exposure on how much they have to pay back if they do go over the cost for delivering care to that patient. So I think the concepts of ACOs, even if CMMI, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, go away, I think ACOs are actually going to stay. And I think it's going to be incorporated into this macro reimbursement model, and it's going to help create patient-centered medical homes throughout the United States, which is really intended to cut the cost of patient care and to engage the patient into one delivery system. It seemed like a lot of the organizations that were participating in the ACOs were those integrated health systems. They it was the, the system as a whole, you, you know, look at a Wellstar, for example, um, organizations like that with some smattering of participation for those individual practices that were out there. But it sounds like there may be some opportunities and even some actual incentives to, to even though I'm a, a non-employed physician by a, a health system that's part of an ACO, it might make sense for me to participate. Sure, absolutely. I think ACOs will help them maximize their MIP score and it'll help them reduce their costs. So I mentioned in the first year, it's just quality clinical practice improvement, advancing care information that docs are going to get scored on. In 18, 2018, they'll also be scored on the cost. What does it cost for them to deliver care versus their peers? So we talked earlier about the PQRS reporting and that QRUR report that docs can get. Today, Medicare looks at each physician based on how much it costs for them to deliver care to certain kinds of diagnosis codes for patients like mm-hmm. diabetes or mm-hmm. um, COPD or coronary disease or heart failure. They look at the doc and they compare him to his peers on was his cost higher or lower than his peer. And the doc later is going to get rewarded if his cost to deliver care is less than his peer who lives somewhere else. So Now, is that demographically and geographically adjusted, I guess? It is. It's risk-adjusted based upon patients' comorbidities, and it's adjusted based on wage index. Now, something that I know that comes into play when it comes to, I'm sure it, it's probably on both CMS-type reimbursement as well, but I know in the, in the commercial insurance space, if I'm an internal medicine physician and the, the patients that I see are tend to be sicker, just, I just have a, I have a passion about, I don't know, name hypertension, the, the variety of chronic, difficult to treat because they require such a commitment from the patient when they're not in my, in my site, uh, that it can be challenging and your, your patient population will look sicker than the next door practice that maybe doesn't have such a density of those higher acuity, sicker patients. Does that get considered as well? Because from what I understand, Places like neurology, for example, is, a, is one of those areas where you, if you see some of those really hard patients, then you can have poorer looking scores on outcomes than somebody who doesn't see the, the heavy stuff. 
Yeah, one of our jokes is for all of my physician clients, they have the sickest population. Whoever I'm talking to that day, they've got the sickest population. But yes, um, absolutely. And those scores get risk adjusted so okay. that they're trying to compare apples to apples. I see. And that PQ, the QRUR report will show a physician in relation to his peer based on diabetes, CAD, COPD, okay. heart failure, so they can see it. Well, what about what about the Stark regulations? How will they? Do you see them getting affected or changed in some big way? It would seem that with the regulatory easing that we're seeing here, that maybe that that will loosen a bit as well. Do you see the same? I do. So last year, the House and the Senate, on a federal level, were evaluating Stark, and they put out a report about the fact that they were evaluating it and whether or not. They should repeal part of it, modify some of it. So I do see that coming down the pike. Now, obviously, right now there's a freeze on all regulations, but I do see changes there. And then from a healthcare reform standpoint, they had created a prohibition in healthcare reform law that physicians could not own hospitals and refer Medicare patients to those hospitals if the hospital was not owned by physicians prior to March of 2013, which is when healthcare reform was signed. So, or 2010, sorry. So if they didn't own it before 2010, they couldn't own a hospital later and refer to it. That was built into the Stark Law. It's called the whole hospital exception. Whole hospital exception. They had to have ownership in the whole hospital before healthcare reform was passed in order to be grandfathered in. I see that part going away because one of the things we keep hearing about is competition improves healthcare outcomes. Mm -hmm. It reduces costs. So Mm -hmm. The concept on the exchanges, make a private exchange and create competition among insurance providers. Hospitals, physicians create competition. So creating competition means opening that door again for physicians to own hospitals and to be able to refer patients to those hospitals under the Starkhole Hospital exception. Do you feel like that's a good thing that we would maybe ease that a little bit? Or, I mean, do you feel like it's really going to open the door to abuse? Well, that's a tough question. So I think. From a regulatory standpoint, there are a lot of things under Stark because it's a strict liability law that are very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So one of the things the government has said is that if you violate Stark, which is strict liability, then you should do a self-disclosure to the government and they'll determine whether or not how much money they take back under that. (laughs) So when I say Stark as a strict liability statute, one of the exceptions to Stark is just so everybody understands, Stark is where a physician has a financial relationship with an entity that provides certain kinds of services that get billed to Medicare. So, for example, a doc has a medical director agreement with a hospital, and he might refer to that hospital for hospital services, labs, x-rays, those types of things. If his arrangement doesn't satisfy a Stark exception, then in all the elements of that Stark exception, then it's considered a violation. And then there's penalties that you have to pay as a result of that. So a Stark exception for medical director agreement is under the Stark personal services arrangement, which I won't go through all the elements, but the key elements, written agreement, signed by both parties for a term of at least one year, fair market value consideration for legitimate business services, and doesn't violate anti-kickback statute. So when you, do, when you fail to sign the contract or the contract expires and without an automatic renewal, you technically have a Stark violation because there's not a signed document. They eased those rules at the end of last year because what was happening is they had a bazillion people sending in disclosure saying, okay, we forgot to sign it on January 3rd. So they've eased that a little bit, and now it's easier to create a writing or have a writing through other documents. And then the automatic renewals have also been eased. So they've been trying to work on making Stark more workable. 
And I could see long-term that regulation changing over time, especially with if healthcare reform gets repealed, I think that one provision will likely be part of it. It seemed like so many times, I mean, I understand the the thrust of of why that was put in place. And, and certainly uh, we've had local hospitals affected relatively recently in some big newsmaking uh, things that came out around stark violations. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like in some situations, particularly when they're when you get out into communities where there's not a lot of hospitals available for the doctors in the community, that, that it can create some challenges for them to be able to do their thing, either to recruit specialists that they need to be there, ideally, and that kind of thing, that um, it, it seems like maybe some changes in that could end up being a good thing. Yeah, rolling back some of the strict regs could help in those areas. Well, I, I know I've kept you here already. I won't, going on an hour here. Before I let you get back to the office, do you have some final thoughts that you think that that healthcare executive or the physician that may be listening today might need to think about as they look forward in 2017? Well, I would not lose sight of the macro changes on the physician side. If I'm a doc sitting in my office, I want to focus on what did my QR UR report look like? And if I don't have one, I want to go look at the 271 quality metrics and the 93 clinical practice improvement activity metrics to figure out what I can report on. So if I'm a doc, I'm focused on that side of it. If I'm a healthcare executive in a facility, I think it's stay tuned. It's still a little unknown. They're trying to give us some stability by saying, hey, we're going to roll this out. We're going to take our time and we're going to figure this out. And I do think at the end of the day, it's going to require the providers, the insurance companies, and the patients to all be engaged in that discussion in a meaningful way as we roll out these value-based reimbursement models, and as we change the regs on where we're going forward. Without a doubt, quality outcomes and what you can do to be more efficient, whether you're a physician or a hospital or an ASC, those are going to be key components of how you operate going forward. So I think 2017 will be interesting. It has definitely been dynamic so far. (laughs) Um, If you don't know how to read tweets, I would recommend figuring that out before the end of the year. And we will stay tuned to see what happens next. Well, I definitely appreciate you coming in, Michelle, and talking about this. We've seen over the past year or two that we've been talking about these topics that they're definitely getting listened to. And and so I'm really happy to have you come in and share this great information. If you want more information about Michelle and the practice, Morris Manning and Martin, you can go to mmmlaw.com and find out about all the various specialists that they have and be able to get in touch with Michelle and her colleagues to to learn more about how they might be able to help you be prepared for all the things that are going on right now in the healthcare arena around the law. And if you haven't done so already, in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives, and we hope you subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device and ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. And turn around and share this information. You might just be putting something out that gets in the hands of somebody that you care about that makes a big difference for them. So we'll say thanks to all the folks that share the uh, the link to the podcast for us. Uh, and Michelle, I, I appreciate it. I know you're really busy coming over and sitting in the studio was uh, was great to have you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm sure there'll be plenty of other topics that we can uh, hook up with you and your colleagues about here on the show. So we look forward to that opportunity as well. So I look forward to connecting with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.